In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Remember, O most gracious Virgin Mary, that never was it known that anyone who fled to thy protection, implored thy help, or sought thy intercession was left unaided. Inspired by this confidence, we fly unto thee, O Virgin of Virgins, our Mother. To thee do we come, before thee we stand, sinful and sorrowful, O Mother of the Word incarnate, Despise not our petitions, but in thy clemency hear and answer them. Amen. St. Joseph, St. John the Beloved. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I wonder how many of you would return if I did a series on virtues. Okay. Uh, uh, The popularity of this subject is nothing new. Um, and we are all sort of, uh, you know, kind of interested in this. Um, maybe a little bit of spiritual voyeurism involved here. Um, and, uh, you know, I, was, I, I joked with somebody earlier that it's actually very easy to prepare for these talks because I don't have to do any research. Okay. <laughs> I'd have to do research for the virtues, but not these. <laughs> these always make good press, the seven deadly sins. Uh, last year, I think it was about this time last year, there was a, uh, a headline declaring that the Vatican had announced seven new deadly sins. And, and if you did the legwork to find out exactly what the Vatican had said, you would have discovered that the Vatican actually had not said anything. But a, an official who works for the Vatican had given a talk in which he listed some sins that technology and advancements makes possible that hadn't been possible before. But of course, that doesn't make very good press. And so Vatican declares seven new deadly sins. That made the headlines. It's nothing new, the popularity of this and and kind of the way of approaching uh, the spiritual life and our struggle against evil. Uh, This is at the heart of Dante's uh, Purgatorio, and I, I'll be reading from that as, as we go through these, uh, these uh, couple of lectures. Chaucer uses the seven deadly sins in the Parson's Tale to, uh, to explain the spiritual life and the fight against evil. Uh, Spencer in The Fairy Queen, Christopher Marlowe in Faustus, uh, and of course, Brad Pitt in the movie Seven. Um, and so, from the sublime to the ridiculous, uh, this is a very attractive a uh, very attractive topic. So first, let me just explain a little bit where these come from. I mean, where do we get this list of seven? It begins with St. John Cassian in the fourth century, and he was writing for monks, and he sees these as the main pitfalls for monks. That was taken up in the seventh century by Pope St. Gregory the Great, And he as well sees it as applying mainly uh, to monks. St. Thomas takes St. Gregory's writings and he incorporates it into his discussion of the habits, meaning vices and and virtues, and then uh, his whole discussion uh, of the virtues and their opposing vices. St. Bonaventure does the same thing. Um, They're mentioned in the Catechism today, but just just in one paragraph. and now uh, Mary Eberstadt is uh, doing a series on the seven deadly sins on oh, Inside Catholic or the Catholic thing. One of the Catholic blogs, 
I, I can't remember which one, but she's, she's doing a series on it now, and it's, it's very good. I recommend that to you. Now, here's the bad news. They're not actually seven deadly sins. They're not seven. They're not deadly. They're not sins. Okay, let me explain. Um, they are capital vices. And there's more than seven of them. And as, as, as we see this, we'll see this evening, there are actually eight. And in uh, St. John Cashin's original enumeration, there were eight, not seven. I'll explain how we got to seven. Uh, but seven capital vices, or eight capital vices, it just doesn't make as good a headline. Uh, so seven deadly sins is what uh, we're accustomed to hearing. So first, these are not, properly speaking, sins. What we'll be talking about uh, is not a deliberate acts or, or thoughts or words, but instead we're talking about vices. So they are, they are vices, not sins. So vices in the sense of being a bad habit that inclines us to commit sins. These are weaknesses in the soul that incline us to commit uh, the particular sins. And the tradition says that, the, that these are the seven main ones, and some would go so far as to say they're the only ones. Uh, these are in us by way of our fallen human nature. We are inclined to pride and vanity and greed and all the rest because of our fallen human nature. We are also inclined to these by our own particular sins. So, uh, please God, you won't do this during Lent or, for that matter, any other time. But if you eat too much regularly, you will be cultivating the bad habit or the vice of gluttony. And so our own particular sins can sort of exacerbate or cultivate, if you will, uh, the vices within us. So first, properly speaking, they're not sins, but vices. Second, we call them deadly and has a real punch to it. It's you know, really good for headlines. But the traditional phrase is that they are capital, capital vices. And what does that mean? It, the word capital comes from the Latin word caput, which means head. Uh, these are vices that are the heads of uh, the particular sins. The head in the sense of being the origin of them and the guide of them. Uh, and so when we say that they are capital vices, we, we're not using the term capital in the way we might use it to describe a kind of crime. A, a capital crime is one that you can be executed for. Um, you're not going to be executed for these vices. Uh, these are capital vices in the sense that, that they are the heads or the, the font, if you will, for uh, the particular sins in our lives. And there are not seven of them. Most lists have seven. Uh, but there have been different lists throughout history. Cashin, as I, St. John Cashin, as I mentioned, listed eight, as did some other spiritual writers. Uh, and the same list has not always been in use. Uh, St. John Cashin's differs from uh, Gregory's and, and, his, uh, and, and from St. Thomas's. But whatever the number may be, the listing itself at every moment that uh, the authors try to capture this, the listing itself is an attempt to identify the main sinful inclinations we have. 
uh, as I mentioned, St. John Cashin thought that these just, he was just writing for monks. Uh, Gregory as well. St. Thomas and St. Bonaventure, and St. Bonaventure, to my way of thinking, does it better uh, than St. Thomas, um, which I'm, I'm not accustomed to saying. I'm totally biased towards St. Thomas, but Bonaventure does this better than St. Thomas. But what they're both trying to do is show how this traditional listing really is, is in accord, is an accurate expression of our fallen human nature. I didn't have time to make up the chart that I wanted to make up uh, on the basis of what St. Bonaventure writes, but um, I, I hope to have that for you next week. Um, and so they saw this as kind of proceeding from our fallen human nature and tried to capture why there are these seven and how they are related and how each one sort of flows from a certain weakness uh, in, in our souls. St. Bonaventure, just sort of a preview for the excitement of St. Bonaventure next week, he sees that there's just one source for sin, and that, of course, is pride. Uh, and then he says that there are two um, roots, fear and pleasure, uh, things that prompt us to, um, uh, to run away, to flee, and things that um, prompt us to pursue pleasure. And pride has distorted these two things. And then he explains how these flow into the seven deadly sins uh, that we are familiar with. I mean, intellectually familiar with. So uh, as, as we go through these talks, we will be observing the enumeration that um, Gregory gives us and that St. Uh, Thomas and St. Bonaventure both and, and the tradition since them follows. Um, and that listing is not the exact same as, as, as on the flyer. On the flyer, just kind of follow the, the, the popular uh, enumeration of them, what people are most familiar with. Um, because the enumeration that we will follow really is eight, not seven. How do we get eight? Well, because Gregory speaks of pride as not properly speaking, one of the capital vices, but he calls pride the queen and mother of all vices. And then the other seven are, um, are pride's lieutenants, commanding an army of vice that is trying to conquer our souls. So having removed pride from the traditional list of seven, uh, we have in its place vanity, which looks an awful lot like pride anyway. Uh, and vanity or vain glory, it's empty glory. We'll, we'll talk about that a little more this evening. So pride is the mother, the queen, and then she has her, um, her lieutenants. Vanity, envy, wrath, sloth, avarice, gluttony, and lust. In that order. Uh, and there's an order for a reason, and uh, that should become clear as we go along. This is the order that Dante observes in his, um, in his description of purgatory. And so on one of your sheets, you have a diagram, a rough one, I realize, but a diagram of purgatory according to Dante. Dante is extraordinary not just for the beauty of his poetry, 
but the accuracy of his theology. And he describes purgatory as a mountain. And purgatory is basically going up the mountain. And the mountain has different levels corresponding to the seven deadly sins. Uh, at the bottom, you have sort of an antechamber to, to purgatory. Um, it begins properly with uh, the bottom level where the prideful are. And you can see how each level or each section is a distortion of love. Um, and so as we go through the Devin, seven deadly sins, I will uh, draw on, on Dante to help illustrate the effects of sin and also how we can be delivered from the sin, what virtue helps us to overcome these sins, and what beatitude also uh, we should be striving for. So the order of these is not incidental. It, it does follow a, a very beautiful logic. Um, and the, li the list pro progresses from the most severe, the bottom of the mountain of purgatory, to the least severe, the top of the mountain of purgatory. Pride is the worst. Lust is, is the least evil, which in our culture might be very shocking. Um, We'll, hopefully that will become clear as we go along. Uh, suffice to say, if, if you're familiar with C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, in particular, um, uh, an, an epilogue he wrote um, some, sometime after about, uh, called, uh, I think, Screwtape, Screwtape Proposes a Toast. And, and, he, he's, um, and he discusses how the demons in hell are feasting on souls, but they're not really that tasty. Because these souls were brought to hell by some pretty meager sins, mostly lust and gluttony. And he says, oh, how we wish we could sink our teeth into some really, really sin-laden souls dominated by pride, like the Pharisees, he names. You know, I mean, that was, uh, that was their, their main vice. So uh, it might, it's counterintuitive to us that lust is the least of the seven deadly sins. Um, it's not the worst sin. It's just the most common. Uh, this order also follows things from the most spiritual to the most physical. So if you notice, the bottom three on that list are all spiritual sins. And then sloth is sort of the bridge um, from the spiritual sins to the more physical sins. And of course, it, uh, because the soul is higher in dignity then the body, a failure of the soul is worse than a failure of the body. A sin of the soul is worse than a sin uh, of the flesh. Uh, keeping in mind this order of the sins also should alert us to the fact that they travel together. Um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? Uh, the vices always travel together. The virtues travel together, too. So we can't say, you know, I really want to be courageous. I'm not so big on being meek or humble, okay? No, if we want virtue, if we want one virtue, we have to want them all. And if we want to rid ourselves of one vice, we, by extension, want to rid ourselves of all of them. Next thing, just by introduction... Um, I've talked about how these are in order. Now I want to talk about how they're out of order. Okay. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, essential to understanding these vices 
is to keep in mind that each one of them is the distortion of a good. Again, in the Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis points out, or rather, uh, Uncle Screwtape points out, that the devil can't make anything of his own. He has no weapons of his own. All that he can do is take the good things that God has created and twist them, distort them for his purposes. And that's what the vices are. Each one of them is a distortion of a good, an inordinate living out or an inordinate expression of some natural uh, passion some, or some natural good of the soul. Uh, that will be, become clear as, as we go along. And it's important to keep in mind because this is really just in the nature of sin. In Scripture, one of the words used for sin is harmatia, which means missing the mark. That's what we do when we sin. We miss the mark. We think we're doing something that will bring us a good, but instead we do something evil. We miss the mark. And the vices are really the habits that are missing the mark. They're beginning with some good. They have some good inclination, but it's been sent off the rails and now is doing great damage. So keep in your mind the word inordinate or disordered. This will come up as we go through the seven deadly sins, because each one of them is somehow inordinate or disordered, some aspect of the soul that's inordinate or disordered. And having said that, this series might serve then as a good little introduction uh, to the passions of the human soul, or what we call emotions, because what we will find in the seven deadly sins that these are These are passions which in themselves are morally neutral. These are passions that are derailed. (laughs) They're out of order, they're inordinate or disordered, and for that reason are causing great harm. St. Thomas and the entire Catholic tradition do not negate the passions, but seek to have the passions always in accord with reason. And St. Thomas especially points out time and time again that our passions, our human emotions, desire to be subject to reason. And the more they're subject to reason, the better they become. Which is why the great, in the great saints, we find passion. We find a full and passionate living out of human life. Because their human passions have been subjected to reason, and they're living them out fully. So that's all, way, all by way of introduction. Now, to get to the good stuff, right? Or, or the bad stuff, as it may be. This evening, we're going to talk about pride and vanity. Um, as I said, Saint, uh, uh, Gregory and then St. Thomas following him see pride not as one of the seven deadly sins, but as... Um, it's what St. Bonaventure calls uh, the root of all of them, or, or rather the source of all of them. And uh, St. Thomas calls, the, or rather Gregory calls, uh, the queen and mother of all uh, the vices. So uh, on your sheet, I, uh, I just have a couple of quotes. One from, well, 
One from uh, Chaucer, one from Thomas. Uh, Chaucer wasn't, wasn't a bad theologian himself, just following. By the way, just by the way, Chaucer and Dante, as far as I can tell, were not trained theologians. Why is it then that in their writings we find a pretty good expression of Catholic theology? Because they were rooted in the tradition. This just calls uh, to our minds the importance of being rooted in our Catholic tradition. And the more deeply rooted we are, uh, the more we will really embody these truths and live them. So Chaucer says, now there are two kinds of pride. One of them is within the heart of man, and the other is without. And that corresponds very nicely with what St. Thomas says, pride covets excellence inordinately, while vainglory, or vanity, covets the outward show of excellence. So first, let's talk about pride, superbia uh, in the Latin. And as it's, I have the, the quote on, on your sheet there, um, superbia is so-called because a man there, thereby aims higher or supra than he is. He aims above what he really is. He has uh, an inflated notion of himself, as we might say. So to get at the, the importance uh, of this and understanding this vice so that we can better root it out, keep in mind that the fall of man is not primarily disobedience, but intellectual pride, thinking more of themselves than was true. And so the Catechism uh, describes it as follows. Um, Man, tempted by the devil, let his trust in his creator die in his heart, and abusing his freedom, disobeyed God's command. This is what man's first sin consisted of. All subsequent sin would be disobedience toward God and lack of trust in his goodness. And then it elaborates more. In that sin, man preferred himself to God and by that very act scorned him. This is what pride is. It's sort of a scorning of God, turning away from God, withstanding God himself. He chose himself over and against God, against the requirements of his creaturely status, and therefore against his own good. Against the requirements of his creaturely status. In other words, didn't want to be confined by the limits that God had placed before him. Nothing new under the sun. This is what we see, so it's just announced, we're going to... Uh, begin more embryonic stem cell research. Why? Well, because of pride. Because we are discontent with our creaturely status, with the limits that God has placed uh, on our, our, our human nature. It continues in the Catechism. Created in a state of holiness, man was destined to be fully divinized by God in glory. This was God's intention for man. Seduced by the devil, he wanted to be like God, but without God, before God, and not in accordance with God. In other words, he wanted to take the very thing that God wanted to give him. He seized it for himself. So you can see already how pride can trickle in to other sins. Uh, disobedience, uh, obviously, and, well, a form of theft as well. Uh, the, the fruit of the tree of the, good, of the knowledge of good and evil was not theirs uh, to take. And so pride is uh, part of 
the, what St. Thomas calls the intellective appetite. It's a desire to think oneself better, to esteem oneself better uh, than one really is. It is to desire excellence inordinately. There's that word again, inordinately. Notice, there's nothing wrong with desiring excellence. In fact, one of the problems we have now is that people don't desire excellence. They don't desire moral excellence. They don't desire spiritual excellence. We're content with the bare minimum. And so when we priests teach about the obligation to keep the Sabbath holy, the first question is, well, how late can I get to Mass and still have it count? The second question is, how early can I leave and still have it count? Because we're satisfied with the bare minimum. St. Thomas is presuming that a desire for excellence is good. It is the disordered desire, then the inordinate desire for excellence that constitutes pride. And so uh, St. Thomas says, uh, pride is the appetite for excellence in excess of right reason, thinking better of ourselves than we really are. And Chesterton says, by the way, um, I'll make a plug for it right now, although I, I, I don't know where you can find it. Um, oh, I know, you can find it online, but take some looking. Chesterton has a great essay called, um, If I Had Only One Sermon to Preach. And it's all about pride. And the end of it, he says, if I had only one sermon to preach, I should feel specially confident that I should not be asked to preach another. Um, and in that he says that pride consists in a man making his personality the only test instead of making the truth the test now you may have been accused of being arrogant or prideful when you insist on the truth of the Catholic faith well I'm certain that some people can insist on that arrogantly and rudely and in a boorish manner, sure. But it is not prideful to assent to the truth and to articulate the truth. In fact, rather, it is prideful to make my own judgment the standard for everything. Or more likely, in our culture, to make my own emotions the standard of everything. So I just read something by a man, and of course it had to do with sexual morality, um, because that, that is, is the flashpoint for all the controversies in our, in our culture. Um, I mean, we can't even strive for excellence in, in, in vice. We're, we're settling for the, for, for, for the, for the least of them. Um, and he said that the church's teaching on sexual morality is intellectually coherent and convincing, but emotionally it does not satisfy. It is not in accord with his emotions. That is pride, to put his own emotions ahead of truth and make uh, himself, his emotions, the standard, the test, instead of making truth the test. Also calls to mind the need for humility in discovering the truth. This is why in order to learn, we need to be virtuous. Humility is necessary for the truth because we need to be willing to be taught. So Zechariah uh, is visited by an angel, and the angel tells him that Elizabeth is going to have a son, and Zechariah, 
unfortunately lacking humility, says, how am I to know this? Which strict translation might, might be, or a, a, a colloquial translation rather, might be, prove it. Okay. How am I to know this? Well, how about if an archangel comes and stands in front of you? Okay. Okay. So Zechariah was sort of exalting his judgment over this, and for that reason, was struck dumb. And it's, it's a great way of understanding the effect of pride. It prohibits us from learning and, therefore, of speaking any truth. Dorothy Sayers has this great line regarding uh, pride. The devilish strategy of pride is that it attacks us not in our weakest points, but in our strongest. It is preeminently the sin of the noble mind. This is the pitfall of the intellectuals. The Pharisees had a lot of things right. They did a lot of things right. And pride did not try to run counter to that, but just urged it along right over the cliff. And so uh, some of you have heard me say this before, that the devil manipulates our strengths against us very often uh, and, and, and kind of urges us on in our strengths. And so uh, a good, healthy zeal for the faith might uh, become uh, uh, an anger or, or, uh, or rudeness in articulating the faith. And Chesterton says, again from that same essay, pride is a poison that's so very poisonous that it not only poisons the virtues, as Dorothy Sayers observes, it even poisons the, poisons the other vices. You know, you know, only, only Chesterton is, is going to make, you know, it's good enough to make this observation. And so he, um, he uses, for example, uh, sloth. He says, a man may be naturally slothful and rather irresponsible. He may neglect many duties through carelessness, and his friends may still understand him, so long as it is really a careless carelessness. But it is the devil in all when it becomes a careful carelessness. Okay, and this is kind of like the fashions today when you, you, know, you, you, you take a lot of pride in looking careless, uh, you know, ab- about things. And he uses the example, uh, again, of cowardice. He, said, he says, it would be easy to point out that even cowardice as a mere collapse of the nerves is better than cowardice as an ideal and theory of the intellect. And that and that a really imaginative, imaginative person will have more sympathy with men who, like cattle, yield to, know what, to what they know is panic than with a certain particular type of prig who preaches something that he calls peace. In other words, the pride that takes cowardice and exalts it to a whole intellectual theory, instead of just saying, I was frightened, I was a coward. So pride perverts even the vices. Now, the danger, the the severity of pride, rather, comes from the fact that, as as I said, it withstands God himself. The formal part of sin is its aversion, and pride's aversion, what it turns away from, is God himself, which is why it's the worst, and has a direct and an indirect role in the other vices. So pride has a direct role in the other vices because it might employ the other vices Uh, to its own benefit. It has an indirect role in the other vices because what it does is it lowers the obstacles. And so uh, the glutton might think so much of himself, say, well, I can 
I can have another drink. You know, I'm, you know I, it's not going to affect me. I've got it all together here. And uh, so pride sort of lowers that obstacle uh, that would keep him uh, from a greater gluttony. So in a sense, pride magnifies the other vices. There's an element of competitiveness in pride. This is characteristic of the Pharisees, you know, the, the, the famous uh, parable, of course, uh, or story when uh, the, the, the Pharisee who's, who's, who's um, praying to God and to show how good he is, what does he do? He points to the tax collector and he says, I'm not like that guy. And this is always at play with pride, sort of seeing life as competition and building ourselves up at other people's expense. In pride, there's a certain withdrawal from other people. People who are, pro- who are proud, they walk around with their nose in the air, right? Because they're, they're apart from everyone else. They're too good for you. Um, or, you know, somebody who's, who's prideful, we might say, well, get off your high horse. <laughs> What's wrong with the high horse? Well, they're, they're, they're up there above us, and they're looking down on us. All of these terms that we use to describe pride always have something of the element of of withdrawal from other people, from community. And so you see how pride uh, is a cancer in any community because it separates people, it prompts people to, to separate themselves from one another. And ultimately puts no limit on the evil that, that, that we do because we don't think that we have any limits. And uh, the um, you know, embryonic stem cell research, cloning, and all the rest, we don't think there's any limit. It's just as Paul VI predicted in 1968. He said, man won't, won't think there, there's any limit to what he can do. Uh, and that is a product of pride. It's worth pointing out that there is a legitimate pride. St. Paul talks, uh, talks about it. Um, and... He, he says, for example, um, to, the, uh, to the Corinthians, who might seem the most likely to cause pride, given, given their track record, uh, he says, I, I protest, brethren, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. He, he's referring to his pride in the, in the Corinthians, not because he sees it as something that he has accomplished all on his own, but, but he's rejoicing in this. And, and Chesterton says, when we run across this sort of thing, he says, we really mean something that is the very opposite of pride. For it implies that the man thinks that something outside himself is needed to give him great glory. And so if we, we, are, we are proud, if you, if you say to a, to a child, I'm very proud of you. Well, that's a good kind of pride because that is an acknowledgement that somebody outside of you is able to... Uh, uh, to give glory, and, and you, you, can, you can acknowledge that, and has a cert, there's a certain humility about that. Uh, those who are truly prideful don't usually say to other people, I'm proud of you, <laughs> but they will say a whole lot of times, I am proud of myself, but even, we, <laughs> there's even an innocent way of saying that, okay? If you do well, a child does well on a test, and wasn't expecting to do it, I'm, I'm proud of myself, and it's kind of a joy because it's a surprise, now, the virtue that opposes this vice is, of course, humility. And humility is the proper estimation of oneself. 
seeing oneself as one is. So Our Lady can say, My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. Which seems like a pretty bold thing to say. And it would be. It would be pride if it weren't true. But it is true. And so she can say it with all humility. Humility does not mean... Um, it does not mean overlooking our gifts. It means acknowledging the true source of our gifts and thanking him for those. Now, moving from pride to what St. Gregory calls um, the immediate offspring of pride, we turn to vanity. Vanity of vanities, we read in Scripture. What is vanity? Now, we think, we usually associate vanity uh, just with, well, with, with the looking glass, right? With the mirror, which brings up another great line from Chesterton from that same essay, that there is more wickedness in the looking glass than in the drinking glass. <laughs> uh, we usually associate vanity with the looking glass, just somebody who's just completely in love with himself. Uh, and there is an aspect of that. But more strictly speaking, what vanity is, is vainglory, kenodoxia, empty glory, getting the praise of the Washington Post. <laughs> it's an empty glory. What does it mean? And how many, how many public figures you know, want to get the praise that is here today, gone tomorrow? And so, uh, and, and one, uh, one uh, old uh, poem about the life of St. Francis and, and discussing how he, he combated these vices refers to vanity or vainglory as the huntress of human praise, constantly wanting others to, to recognize how great we are when we're really not that great, or to notice how great we are for no good reason. Now, in Thomas's uh, definition of this, uh, or rather, I'm sorry, I'm taking this from uh, Father John Harden, who probably knew a thing or two about St. Thomas. So um, He calls it an inordinate desire to manifest one's own excellence. It's an inordinate desire for glory. Notice what is presumed there, that there is a reasonable desire for glory. There can be good reasons to want glory. Perhaps to glorify God, perhaps to draw other people to him. Those are legitimate reasons for glory. Um, now, with vainglory, there is a resemblance to pride. Uh, pride is sort of uh, more interior, interiorly wanting uh, that, uh, that excellence that really is not in accord with, with reason and with who we are. Vainglory is sort of the external manifestation of that, wanting others to recognize that, wanting to be given the glory, uh, either when we don't deserve it, or when the glory is from people who don't know any better. <laughs> like if I'm having a bad day, uh, I, I go visit the kindergarten. That's great. <laughs> I recognize this is vainglory. But, but I walk in, and they jump up, they, hey, Father's It, it lasts but a minute, uh, and as soon as they go back to whatever they were doing, I, I realize, okay, it's over, and, and I leave. But, but that, that's one of the things it can make for vainglory, 
It's when it is be, we're seeking glory from people who, who wouldn't recognize it, who aren't fair judges of what makes for glory. Or it's vain glory if we do not refer it to God, when we claim it all as our own. Nothing new under the sun. This has always been, uh, always been with us. Richard Rich, uh, in the trial of St. Thomas More, in that famous scene from A Man, Man for All Seasons, when Richard Rich perjures himself. Why? It's vanity. It's vain glory. Because he wants to be known. And uh, another great scene in that movie, when, when Thomas More tries to keep him from that vanity and says, go, become a teacher. And Richard Rich says, a teacher? Who would know? And Moore says, you, your family, your students, God, not a bad public, that. Okay. Richard Rich betrayed St. Thomas More, uh, really out of, out of this vanity, wanting to be known, wanting this glory that was passing. In our day, this vice is probably exacerbated because of the media because there are so many ways for us to seek out that 15 minutes of fame uh, and, and get glory by way of, well, blogging or, you know, making ourselves known in any number of ways. No, blogs are not intrinsically evil, not intrinsically, but, uh, but, but unfortunately the Internet and so much of the, of, the, of the media really preys on this vice, our desire to be known, to be glorified. And here's the thing. We should have a desire for glory because God wants to glorify us. He wants to share with us his glory. St. Thomas observes that the more necessary thing is, the more important that it be subject to reason. We should desire glory because God has promised to share his glory with us. And if we don't desire that, then we really we don't desire heaven. But because that is so necessary to our spiritual life, all the more necessary that it be under the control of reason. And so St. Thomas says that the opposing virtue to this is not modesty. It's not trying to hide ourselves, which is very interesting that he... he he doesn't say, no, it's modesty or meekness, which are obviously virtues. It's magnanimity, a greatness of soul, a greatness of soul that seeks glory for the right reason. That's what it means to be magnanimous, to really desire great things for the right reason. In the whole section on uh, vainglory or vanity, St. Thomas begins with the question, is seeking glory a sin? He says, no, not automatically. It just becomes a sin when it is what? Disordered. When it is an inordinate uh, desire for glory. So, those are some principles or some descriptions of, of pride and vanity. Now, I'd like to go to the master here uh, and see what Dante has to say about it. Okay, Because in the Divine Comedy, in Purgatorio... In each level of the mountain, a different vice is purged from the soul. And the description that, that Dante gives of the souls who are being purged of their sins is a wonderful way for us to understand 
uh, first of all, the effect of the, of the vice, and second, how we need to free ourselves from it. Um, and so first, uh, the, the, the first uh, level of the mountain um, in, in Canto 10, uh, Dante and Virgil enter into this level, and let me point out three things about this, this circle of purgatory. First, there are enormous sculptures that they encounter of examples of humility, because that is the virtue that moderates this desire for excellence or this, um, and in a certain way, desire, desire for glory. One statue, an enormous statue, is, of course, of the Annunciation. Our Lady, the perfect example of a humble human person. Uh, and then one of King David dancing before the ark, the king of Israel dancing before the ark like a child. And Dante says um, he is at once appearing more and less than king. It's a wonderful thing that, that the, the humility that King David displays in that scene reveals him to be less a king because he humbles himself, but more than a king because by that humility, uh, God's grace can, can raise him up. And then they encounter the souls that are being purged of pride. And this is how he describes them. Sometimes to prop a roof or ceiling up, you'll see the corbel sculpted like a man bearing the weight, knees crushed against his chest, begetting agony in those who see. What's not real makes you feel really oppressed. So I saw them when I looked carefully. According to the heaviness, in fact, they were hunched more or less by what they bore. And those who showed most patience in the act seemed to say, weeping, I can bear no more. So what is it? Is it these souls being purged of pride have these enormous boulders on their shoulders, and they are hunched over so that their knees are to their chest, or rather chest to their knees. Why? Because the pride always have their nose in the air. The prideful always have their nose in the air. They refuse to bow. And one of them says, uh, he refers to the boulder that tames my arrogant and stiff-held neck and forces me to look the humbler. What they failed to do in this world, they are trained to do in purgatory, to humble themselves, to bow, which is one of the most profound Uh, symbols of humility. And then, uh, as regards vanity, he touches on this as well. Uh, He refers to, O empty glorying in human power, how short a day the crown remains in leaf. How short a day the crown remains in leaf. So we're trying to get these, these crowns, these laurels, and they're gone very, very quickly. They don't last. It's empty glory. And then he says later, your fame is like the color of the grass. It comes, it goes, and it turns brown and dry in the same sun that made its seedlings green. And so like grass, it just is green, and then in the sunlight turns brown. That is vain glory. 
also on this level of purgatory, as these souls are hunched over, learning how to bow, there are little, little carvings, little reliefs in, on, on the ground of those who are proud. It's kind of their tombstones. And so it's examples from scripture and from secular history of people who were proud. And so as those who are being humbled, as they go through this level, they're hunched over. You have to imagine it. They're hunched over. They're looking at the ground. And every step of the way as they go, they see these little reliefs, these little sculptures of the proud. And it looks like tombstones that pride buries us. So better we learn how to bow this side of heaven, um, this side of death, than on the next. So that concludes uh, for this evening, uh, just the introduction, and uh, then the two vices, the mother and queen of all, which is pride, and then the first of the seven deadly, uh, properly speaking, which is vanity, vain glory, empty glory. I've, I've just spoken about pride and vanity, and he says, can we applaud? What am, what am, what am, what am, <laughs> please, right? <laughs>